0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him?
1: Episode 231, Swinburne's Social Theory of the Trinity. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, you'll get to hear the entire presentation with Q&A and everything by distinguished Christian philosopher, Professor Richard Swinburne, emeritus from Oxford University. This talk was from March of 2018 at the joint meeting of the Evangelical Philosophical Society and the Evangelical Theological Society at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Houston. Professor Swinburne is presenting his most recent thoughts about the Trinity, material which has recently been published in the prestigious Philosophy of Religion journal Religious Studies in the UK. There are a whole bunch of interesting things about this talk if you have the slightest bit of interest in Professor Swinburne's work. Notice what he says at the beginning about the Bible and the Trinity. This explains his motivation in this sort of apologetic project. Do you agree with what he says about the Bible and the Trinity? And another interesting thing, notice that Professor Swinburne denies that there is a fundamental difference between an Eastern approach to the Trinity and a Western approach to the Trinity. That is part of his point in giving us a list of what he claims are shared theses in the Christian world after the establishment of Trinitarian Orthodoxy towards the end of the 4th century. In the middle section, there's some heavy metaphysics, but keep going. He eventually gives his argument why there can't be one divine being, but rather there have to be exactly three divine beings. This is the type of argument that I was trying to critique in the last episode of the Trinity's podcast. And you'll want to keep going through the Q&A too, because some of the questions and answers are interesting. You might recognize a voice or two in there. And another thing to ask about as you reflect on this talk is, do you accept his answer to the final objection? Credit has to go to the sponsors of this talk, which are the Evangelical Philosophical Society, the Institute of Philosophical and Theological Research, and St. Constantine's School. If you want to know more about these sponsors, I've got links to all of them on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Thanks also to Dr. Joshua Ferris, who is instrumental in organizing the EPS side of this conference and bringing Swinburne to it. Here then is Dr. Joshua Ferris introducing Professor Swinburne. And let me just add that he's not exaggerating.
2: Professor Richard Swinburne comes to us from the University of Oxford, where he is the Emeritus Professor of Philosophy of the Christian Religion. Prior to serving as a Professor of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, Professor Swinburne was Professor of Philosophy at the University of Kiel. And he's also served in a number of, uh, a number of other places as a visiting scholar. We're honored to have Professor Swinburne with us. For as many of you know, he is one of the most significant Christian philosophers alive today. And there are several reasons for this. First, Professor Swinburne was a forer- or is a forerunner of what is now termed analytic theology, which is a particular mode or way of doing theology that utilizes the tools and language of analytic philosophy in the service of constructive theology. So he was doing analytic theology before it became a term. Professor Swinburne has made some of the most significant contributions to the area of natural theology, particularly in his trilogy, which many of you may be aware of, which include the existence of God, the coherence of theism, and faith and reason. In many ways, his arguments favor not only generic theism, but also Christian theism. Third, Professor Swinburne has given us one of the most sophisticated philosophical defenses of Cartesian substance dualism in the evolution of the soul and in mind, brain, and free will. In these and other ways, we have among us a philosophical giant. So let's welcome Professor Swinburne.
0: Uh, Thank you for having me. It seems to me, although I shall not argue it here, that even if you regard the New Testament as an infallible source of doctrine, you cannot derive from it a doctrine of the Trinity. Although there are many passages in the New Testament which speak of Christ as divine, and passages which speak of the Spirit of God, or of Christ and of the Comforter, There are non-Trinitarian ways of interpreting these letter passages which are just as plausible as interpreting them as expressing the doctrine that the Holy Spirit is a divine person and so entailing a doctrine of the Trinity. I shall not argue this here, that this is not in the New Testament, but it seems to me that it isn't. So unless Christians today either recognize some good a priori argument for a doctrine of the Trinity or unless they consider that the fact that the subsequent church taught a doctrine of the Trinity is a significant reason for interpreting the passages in a Trinitarian way, unless they've either got an a priori argument or they believe the church's authority, it seems to me that most Christians today would not be justified in believing that doctrine. Those who do recognize the church's authority to teach normally regard the Nicene Creed promulgated by the First Council of Constantinople as the first binding authoritative statement from which a doctrine of the Trinity can be derived. And indeed, since Orthodox and Monophysites do not recognize the so-called Athanasian Creed as having any authority, the only authoritative statement on this matter binding alike on Catholics, Orthodox, Monophysites, Anglicans and some Protestants. The Nicene Creed affirms belief in one God, Theos, Greek, Deus and Latin, then Since it speaks of the Son who is begotten of the Father, as true God from true God, of one essence with the Father, it explicitly affirms that both the Father and the Son are God. It goes on to speak of the Spirit who proceeds from the Father, as to be worshipped jointly with the Father and the Son. Although the Council of Constantinople was unwilling to say so explicitly in the Creed, it follows from the Creed that since the only the Divine can properly be worshipped, the Spirit is also God. And the Council's synodical letter speaks of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit as having a single Godhead and power and substance. It's normally acknowledged that there's an apparent contradiction here, The Creed claims that there is only one God, and also three apparently divine beings, different beings, who are each God. But Theos and Deus, the Greek and Latin words, can both be understood either as the name of a unique individual, proper name, God, or as a predicate, meaning divine, which can be predicated of more than one individual, While no doubt the Fathers of the Council did not have a very clear view about which was the sense in which there was just one God and the sense in which each of the three beings are God, the distinction between the two senses of the crucial words does make available one obvious way of resolving the apparent contradiction. This is by thinking of these words as having the former sense when the Creed says there's one God and as having the latter sense when it claims that each of the beings is God. Thus understood, the Creed is saying that there is one unique thing, which it names God, which consists of three beings. The Creed states that the Father is the originating source of the other two beings. He begets the Son and the Spirit proceeds from the Father. But it provided no elucidation of what was the difference between being begotten and proceeding. The three beings came to be called in Greek hypostases or prosopa, and in Latin substantiae or personae. And what they had in common in Greek was their ousia, in Latin their essentia, natura, or substantia. And you will note the fact that this was the first real big. Confusion introducing in Christian thought that these two crucial words which make all the difference, ousia and apostasies, came to be translated in Latin sometimes by the same word, substantia. That's bound to lead to a lot of confusion. I will call the beings persons and what they have in common their essence. All of this is the framework which subsequent theories of the Trinity seek to fill out. And if a theory uh, can't be regarded as filling out that doctrine, I don't see that it can be regarded as a Christian theory of the Trinity. This has formed the framework for all subsequent theories. Now, although the fathers of the Council of Constantinople might have been a bit confused about what they were saying when they said that these beings had one usia and so on, it seems to me, that seemed to me, that from the first fifth century onwards until much more modern times, among all Catholic and Orthodox theologians, and I would suppose most early Protestant theologians, to be agreement on five further matters, which I will now spell out. There's a longer paper of mine coming out in Religious Studies shortly, which gives uh, a few more quotations, uh, substantiating my view that these five points were common both to theologians and of the East and the West. The first such agreed matter is that the members of the Trinity are persons in the sense defined by Boethius. Boethius defined a person as an individual substance substantia of a rational nature. And he adds that by this definition, we Latins have described what the Greeks call hypostases, and he claims that the Greek usage is much clearer. A hypostasis, Boethius claims, is what underlies and supports accidental properties, and it's best translated into Latin as substantia, an individual thing, not a genus or species. And a Boethius is always cu- uh, quoted by all writers in the West as authoritative on this matter. So, first agreed matter, the persons of the Trinity are persons in this sense. Second agreed matter is that each of the persons has the same essential intrinsic properties which makes each of them divine. I understand properties as including both intrinsic properties, which are properties that can be possessed by one substance independently of its relations to any other substance, and relational properties, which are properties that relate two or more substances to each other. Thus, having a mass of 10 kilograms is an intrinsic property. A substance can have that mass independently of how it's related to other substances, Being taller than is a relation which can relate many different pairs of substances to each other and so being taller than John is a relational property which relates its possessor to John. An essential property of a thing is a property which it must have in order to exist. Thus occupying space is an essential property of my desk. So, to repeat, it was agreed that each of the persons has the same essential intrinsic properties which alone make them divine. Having exactly the same essential intrinsic properties which make them all divine, all theologians assumed, follows from their having the same usia, the same unknowable essence. But in what sense of usia? Usia has several meanings of which two are crucially relevant to the present discussion. Aristotle distinguished between ousia in the primary sense of an individual thing, a particular man or horse, and ousia in the secondary sense of the essence common to all members of a particular species or genus. While the 4th century theologians may have understood Ousea in different senses and so not have had a clear agreed view about the sense in which the members of the Trinity are homoousios, of the same essence, it seems to me that many theologians then and almost all theologians after the 5th century understood it in the secondary sense. For example, in the Eastern tradition, I quote from both Basil of Caesarea and John of Damascus. I quote on the handout from Basil of Caesarea and from John of Damascus, uh, which uh, says that um, the usia is the common thing which the different members have. Just as Peter and Paul are both human beings, they, they share the Usia common to humanity, so the Father, Son and Spirit have the same Usia. they share what is common to all di- divine beings. But people have doubted whether the Western tradition quite accepted that. Um, the Fourth Lateran Council of A.D. 1215 rejected the supposed view of John Joachim of Fiore that the unity of the Godhead is a collective unity, quote, in the way that many persons are said to be one people. And it declared that it to be a Catholic doctrine that there exists a certain reality, supreme reality, a raise, that is, divine substance, essence, or nature, which truly is the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Yet it had earlier said that the Trinity is undivided according to its common essence, but distinct according to the properties of the persons. So it allows that the persons have distinct properties, but share a common essence. So what more is it saying than that Basil said? seems to imply there's something that is tighter the unity than that they were each of them divine and that they really share it's not that each of them are divine but they all have the same divinity in some sense now what is at stake here leading to the suggestion that there are different views Latin and Greek being developed what is at stake here is a difference of understanding of essence, usia, in the secondary sense between Eastern and Western theologians. For many Easterners, an essence of a kind was simply an abstract universal. To say that being an embodied rational animal is the essence of humans is just to say, for the Easterners, that to be human is to be an embodied rational animal. But for many Western thinkers, an essence of a kind was a concrete thing, located in each of the things that were of that kind. It was divided among the things of that kind and to be found in the places where they were. On this view of concrete universals, Peter had a bit of the essence of humanity and Paul had a different bit. But of course each of the members of the Trinity do not occupy places, and so the essence of divinity is not spread among different places. Hence, the essence of divinity was not divisible in the way that the essence of humanity was divisible. The essence of divinity was not divisible. Hence, it was una res, one thing, fully instantiated in each of the persons. But no Eastern theologian was going to deny that, in that sense, the essence of each of the persons was una res. So Lateran four was not, I think, making any theological point with which the East might disagree. It was merely expressing an agreed point in terms of a philosophical category, concrete universal, which the Easterners did not use, but would have agreed with the point made in terms of that category. That is my suggestion.
1: When the Trinity's podcast returns, Professor Swinburne gives us what he says is a third point on which most Christian sources from the 5th century until modern times agree on.
0: degree matter is that the persons differ from each other in their relations of origin and this was the only essential difference difference in relations of origin between them thus Boethius wrote that quote the manyness of the trinity is expressed by the category of relation only terms belonging to relation may be applied singly to each member of the trinity the father was the core of the existence of the other two who were distinguished from each other by the Son being begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeding from the Father. But this led to three different views about what these relations were. The first view was that they were simply relations of causation as such And so the difference between the persons is that the Father is that person who is directly the cause of the Son and either jointly with the Son or through the Son, the cause of the Spirit. The Son is the person who is caused by the Father alone and the Spirit is the person who is caused by the Father, either with or through the Son. So the distinction between the relations is just a distinction of causation. They have different causal relations to each other. That is one view in which all these three views are views about the difference between the persons is just a matter of their relations. And the first view is those relations are simply relations of causation neither I nor Aquinas nor Scotus could see any difference between the formula of the Roman Catholic version of the Creed that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and the formula which is accepted to many Orthodox that the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. The second view which was the view of John of Damascus and many modern Orthodox was that both Son and Spirit were caused by the Father alone. In that case, the causal relations of the Father to each of them would have to be relations of different kinds. Begetting would have to be a different relation from spirating, that is, causing to proceed. This third view and the third view, which I find in both Western and Eastern theologians, combined these two other views. It held that the Son and the Spirit differed from each other both in virtue of their different causal relations to the father, and because the causal relations themselves were of different kinds. Because all agreed that the persons were distinct only because of their different relations to each other, it follows that they do not have thisness, in Latin hycaitas, a word invented by Duns Scotus. To say that a thing has thisness is to say, it's logically possible there could have existed instead or in addition to that thing, that substance, a different thing which has all the same properties as the former thing. The view that um, fundamental particles don't have thisness is simply the view that there's no difference between one electron occupying that space and a different electron occupying space. Any electron which had the same Uh, intrinsic properties and the same relation to past electrons would be the same electron. On the other hand, in my view, human beings have got thisness. That is to say, there would be a difference between my giving you this lecture and somebody exactly like me who had all the same mental properties and all the same history talking to you. So the issue is whether things are different from each other in a way other than that they have different properties. And given that the persons of the Trinity are distinct only because of their different relations to each other, only because of their different relations to each other, it follows that they do not have thisness. To repeat, to say that a thing has thisness is to say, it's logically possible there could have existed instead or in addition to that thing, a different thing which has all the same properties as the former thing. Aquinas wrote that it is in virtue of the same fact that God is God and that God is this God, which implies that God himself does not have thisness. The properties which make him God are sufficient and necessary to make in this God and there couldn't be a different God instead of this God who had all the same properties and if God himself uh, the three together as it were do not have thisness it follows that no divine person no one of them can have thisness for if a substance does not have thisness no part of that substance have thisness that the persons of the trinity do not have thisness is important for me for a later a priori argument which I'm coming to in due course for the truth of the doctrine of the trinity. So we've made three points on which I think east and west were agreed in the subsequent centuries. For the fourth point is that all agree that there being three divine persons does not entail that the God is a compound or has three parts. But what did that mean, that it's not a compound? One reason for this, writes John of Damascus, is that the persons have the same essence. And Aquinas also gives, as a reason why there's only one God, that the whole fullness of the divine nature is present in each of the persons. But if that's all there is to their not being parts, of one God, it seems to me that such reasons do not rule out the person's being parts in the sense that together they constitute the Trinity, and although they would be a bit unwilling to make that point in this way, I suggest that most of the fathers and medievals would have accepted that. And finally and fifthly, all the patristic and medieval thinkers agree that all the actions of each member of the Trinity are actions of the whole Trinity except the characteristic acts, as Aquinas calls them, which are the acts by which one member causes another member. Thus the characteristic acts of begetting the Son and spirating the Spirit are not as Aquinas puts it, they are not acts of will in the sense of being the source of effects which can be one way or the other that's how he describes it, rather they are acts of nature that is it follows from the nature of the relevant person, nature of the father for example that he will beget or spirate. he has no free choice about whether or not to beget or spirate. but they are not consequences of course of a necessity which acts independently of the person's will. The father begets the son willingly, writes Aquinas, although, of course, he has no option whether to or not. So with these precisifications, I find in Western medieval thought the same doctrine of the Trinity as in Eastern thought. And this theory is a social theory in the sense that it postulates three persons in Boethius' sense as distinct centers of knowledge, love, will, and action. I see no evidence of any theory of the Trinity between the fifth century and modern times recognized as within the bounds of orthodoxy, which is not a social theory in this sense. It is true that the models of the Trinity which Augustine discusses in the middle chapters of De Trinitate, such as the models of the mind, the mind's love of itself and the mind's knowledge of itself and the model of the mind's memory, understanding and will are not models of a social trinity for they are all models of one person and of parts or properties of that person which could not exist without the person. In Boethius's sense of person, they are theories of one person. But Augustine himself rejected these analyses, analogies as totally inadequate. In the final chapter of De Trinitate, he rejected them on the grounds that each of the persons of the Trinity has love, understanding, and so on, quite apart from their relation to the other members. Well. That's part one of the paper, and it is my view of what the view of the Trinity was, what it amounted to in the centuries from 500 onwards, and I find a common view in East and West on these matters. With of course a minor exception of some people interpreted the filioque in a different way than others.
1: When the Trinity's podcast returns, Professor Swinburne defends the coherence of his suggestion that there can be more than one divine being.
0: of church tradition in the major respects which I have just analysed about the kind of trinity affirmed by the creed seems to me good reason for adopting it the mere fact that the church did hold this doctrine but it needs to be spelled out in order to show that it does not contain any inconsistencies A divine person is naturally understood as one who is essentially eternally omnipotent and exists in some sense, some sense necessarily. If eternal is understood as everlasting, then at each moment of everlasting time, the Father is the cause of the existence of the others at the subsequent moment. If eternal is understood as timeless, then the Father timelessly causes each of the others. I shall subsequently understand eternal as everlasting, but I think what I have to say can be easily put in terms of timelessness. Being divine, each is also omnipotent. And if we understand a person being omnipotent, and not merely as having the power intentionally to do any logically possible action, but also as knowing the nature of the alternative actions between which he can choose, and as being free from non rational influences, then omnipotence entails perfect goodness in the following sense an omnipotent person will know of each available action whether it's good or bad and whether it's better than some incompatible action recognizing an action as good entails having some motivation to do it and recognizing an action as better than another one entails having a greater motivation to do it and recognizing an action as bad entails having motivation not to do it. So, if there is in some situation a best possible action, or kind of action, for him to do, any omnipotent person will always do that action, or kind of action. But in many situations, for an omnipotent person, as also for us, there will be two or more incompatible possible actions, or kinds of action, each as good as the other and better than any other action or kind of action. In such a situation, an omnipotent person will freely choose which of them to do. But surely there will be frequently before an omnipotent person, as there is not before us, a choice between an infinite number of incompatible possible actions or kinds of action, each of which is less good than some other action or kind of action, but where there is no best. In such a case, The perfect goodness of a divine being can only consist in choosing to do one of these actions even though the action the person chooses will not be the best because there is no best. Thus supposing that it were a best possible action to create planets and the more of them the better. The inner omnipotent being will be perfectly good if he creates exactly one planet but he will not be worse than he would be if he created two planets. Although an act of creating planets would be a better act the more planets are created. You can't expect an omnipotent being to do what is logically impossible, and since there is no best such act, he can't be expected to do it. So given that, wherever he stops, however many planets he makes, he's no better if he makes 51 than if he makes only 50. Given that, then wherever he stops in the series, he's equally perfectly good. Now given that any omnipotent person is in this sense perfectly good, in the sense that he does the best if there is a best, he does an equal best if there is an equal best, and if there's an infinite series of good actions, each better than the last, he will just do one of them. Given that any omnipotent person is in that sense perfectly good, there could be only more than one omnipotent person if each of the omnipotent persons believed that it would be bad for him to bring about effects of certain types, types which only some other omnipotent person had the right to bring about. That is, there must be some agreement about among them which area of activity each is entitled to control. Otherwise, we would get the incompatibility that uh, one of the persons of the Trinity would think it an equally best action to make the planet go in a clockwise direction relative to some frame of reference, and the other member of the Trinity would correctly think it would be an equally best action to make it go clockwise in that direction. And they can't both succeed, and so at least one of them wouldn't be omnipotent. There must be some agreement between them, such that they recognize that they have spheres of activity and they can only act in those spheres of activity. It would be good for them to act in those spheres of activity and being perfectly good, they would confine themselves to those spheres of activity. Of course, uh, in whatever sphere of activity each of them had the right to initiate activity, they would be backed by the other members of the Trinity and hence the doctrine that all the actions, all the external actions of the Trinity are actions of the whole Trinity. Hence the unity of the Godhead in power affirmed by the Council of Constantinople's Synodical Letter. This demarcation of areas of influence could not be reached by discussion among the persons. They couldn't discuss who shall be in charge where? For while the discussion was taking place none of them would be omnipotent. In causing the others to exist at each moment of time the Father would have to lay down the rules determining who had the right to do which actions and the other members of the Trinity would recognize his right as the source of their being to act in only those areas of activity. So, they can only be perfectly good and omnipotent if that is the setup. Son and Spirit could only exist with the same necessity as the Father if their causation by the Father was not a voluntary act. Otherwise, they wouldn't be necessary beings if it was a voluntary act. And so, it would have to follow from the nature of the Father that He would bring about Son and Spirit. It follows that the Son and Spirit do not have thisness. That is, each is not such that there could be, instead of him, a different person with all the same properties, including the same relations to other beings as the actual Son and Spirit. For if, for example, the Son had thisness, then, since there could have been innumerable possible persons with exactly the same properties as the actual Son there would have been no reason to cause one to exist rather than another. And so the father would have to choose to bring about one of them by a voluntary act. And in that case, the actual son would not exist with the same necessity as the father, because the father would choose which was to exist, and so that one wouldn't exist necessarily. So son and spirit cannot have thisness. And... uh, the Father would be different in his nature if he had thisness, but the other two members did not, and so it's uh, reasonable to suppose that he too would lack thisness. Since the three divine persons do not have thisness, they can be distinct only if they have different intrinsic or relational properties from each other. But given that it is simpler to suppose that they each have no more, than, no more intrinsic properties than those following from essential divine properties, the difference must consist in their having different relations to each other. And inevitably the father will have a different relation to the other two persons since he causes them and they do not cause him. And his doing this must entail his having a certain initial primacy which puts him in a position to do this. The difference between the Son and the Spirit could therefore consist in each having a different kind of relation to the Father. And the simplest form of that would be if one, the Son, is caused by the Father alone, and the other, the Spirit, is caused by the Father and or through the Son. But the difference could also, as I have seen earlier, consist in each being caused by the Father in a different way signified by the unexplained difference between being begotten and proceeding. Simplicity favours the view that the difference consists solely in their asymmetric relations of origin to the Father, the Son being caused by the Father alone and the Spirit being caused by the Father and or through the sun and I shall shortly give an a priori argument in favor of that view. What I have been doing in this second part is to argue that it is coherent to suppose there's no contradiction in supposing that each of the divine, each of the persons is divine in exactly the same sense being omnipotent, everlasting and so on and um, that doesn't lead to any of them being inferior in their power to any of the other ones. So given that it is coherent to suppose that there is one divine person, understood as a person who has essentially eternal omnipotence and exists necessarily, I suggest that I have shown that it is coherent to suppose that there are three such persons who form a trid- trinity of this traditional kind. Given that they are individuated by their relations to each other, it follows that each person could not exist without the others. The Father wouldn't be the Father unless he brought about the Son. And as a consequence of the nature of the Father that he will continually sustain in existence Son and Spirit, and the nature of the Son that he will help to maintain to sustain the Spirit.
1: When the Trinity's podcast returns, Professor Swinburne gives his argument for a social trinity from reason alone.
0: I shall now argue in the next and final section that not merely is this coherent, but there is a strong a priori argument in favour of it being true, that is, that necessarily, given that there is one divine person, the Father, there will be two and only two more divine persons. The claim that there is a trinity of the above kind needs filling out in a crucial respect In most of the authors whom I have discussed so far, there isn't much about why it's a good thing that God is triune. Yet on a social theory, the answer is obvious because if there are three divine beings, they can exhibit within the Godhead that characteristic of God which Christians have regarded as so important, love. Important to medieval thought, was the Dionysian principle that goodness, by its very nature, is diffusive of itself. It seeks to produce more good things. Augustine wrote, with respect to the father generating an equal, quote, If he wished to, but could not, he is weak. If he could, but did not wish to, he is envious. And in the 12th century, Richard of St. Victor echoed this and claiming that the fullest kind of love is love of an equal and so it would not be enough for God to create humans deduced that the Father must generate the Son. A lonely God would not be a perfectly good God because perfect goodness tries to create more good things and being God would succeed in doing so. Perfect love must be love of someone worthy of perfect love, wrote Richard of St. Victor, and only a divine person could be worthy of perfect love. I wouldn't myself put the point in quite that way. Rather, I would say that perfect love must be fully mutual love, reciprocated in kind and quantity, involving total sharing, the kind of love involved in a perfect marriage and only a being who could share with him the rule of the universe could fully reciprocate the love of another such being. While, of course, the love of a parent for a child is of immense value, it is not the love of equals, and one thing which makes it as valuable as it is is that the parent is seeking to make the child, as she grows up, into an equal. So, to put the point in terminology I used earlier, it would be a unique best action for the Father to cause the existence of the Son and so inevitably he would do so. If we think of God as temporal, in existing in time as Augustine and Richard of St. Victor did not, it follows that the Father could not begin to cause the existence of the Son at some moment of time, say a trillion trillion years ago. That would be too late. For all eternity before that time, the Father would not have manifested his perfect goodness. Rather, at each moment of everlasting time, the Father must cause the Son to exist and so always keep the Son in being. He wouldn't be a divine being unless he did. A twosome can be selfish. A marriage in which husband and wife are interested only in each other and do not seek to spread the love they have for each other is a deficient marriage, and of course the obvious way but not the only way in which humans can spread their love is by having children. Perfect love for a beloved, wrote Richard of St Victor, must involve the wish that the beloved should be loved by someone else also. You love someone, Richard said, if you want them to have someone else to love and be loved by. That gives you an unselfish love. Hence it will be a unique best action for the Father to cause the existence of a third divine being whom Father and Son could love and by whom each could be loved. Hence the Holy Spirit. And I suggest it would be best if the Father included the Son as co-cause, as he is of all the other actions of the Father, in causing the Spirit. And again, they must have caused the Spirit to exist at each moment of everlasting time. Hence the Trinity must always have existed. So why only three divine persons? Do not these arguments suggest that there should be more than three divine persons? Richard of St. Victor's answer is that there would be no need for a fourth, since three divine persons would satisfy the demands of love fully. I argued earlier that when there is a unique best action, a divine person must do it. It was a unique best action for the Father to bring about another divine person, for perfect love requires another with whom to share. And it was a unique best action for Father and Son to bring about a third divine person, for the love of Father for Son and Son for Father required that they should cause there to be some divine person other than themselves for the other to love and be loved by. So three persons is the necessary minimum for unselfish love between persons of the same kind. Every member of the Trinity could show unselfish love without there being a fourth divine person. However, Richard did not consider an objection that even so, surely the more divine persons the better. And so surely, good divine persons would produce lots more good divine persons. And hence, he has not proved that God must be triune. His argument needs a crucial further step, which I now add to it, as follows. If the objection were correct, that you ought to have more divine persons, then however many divine persons the Father, in conjunction with others, brought about, it would be still better if he brought about more. But, as I argued earlier, when there is an infinite series of incompatible good actions, each less good than the next one, available to some agent, it's not logically possible that he do the best one because there is no best one. An agent is perfectly good in that situation if he does any one of those good actions. So since to bring about only three divine persons would be incompatible with an alternative action of bringing about only four divine persons, and so generally, the perfect goodness of the Father would be satisfied in his bringing about only two further divine persons. He does not have to bring about a fourth divine person in order to fulfil his divine nature. Consequently, because he doesn't have to bring about a fourth divine person, to do so would therefore be an act of will and a free choice on his part, not an act of essence, not one that followed from his nature. But then, in that case, if it was an act of will, any fourth divine person would not exist as necessarily in the sense in which the second and third divine persons exist necessarily his existence would not be a necessary consequence of the existence of a necessary being and hence since he wouldn't be a necessary being, he'd only be created by an act of will and God might or might not, the Father might or might not create him, since he wouldn't be in that sense a necessary being, he wouldn't be divine at all a fourth divine person for that reason cannot be a divine hence although for other kinds of persons uh, no doubt uh, 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 there there can be (laughs) uh, more more of them. Um, What I have suggested is that for perfect love, three is, uh, of all kinds of person, three is the minimum number necessary, but for divine persons it is also the maximum number Necessary, because any fourth divine person would be created by an act of will and so not be divine. So I have been arguing that the doctrine which historically I have analysed in the first section and which I have claimed to be consistent with itself in the second section is in fact the true doctrine of the Trinity. Thank you.
1: When the Trinity's podcast returns, Q&A time.
0: that uh, for the minimum love, is that human love? For that any, yes, for any sort of love between any beings of the same sort, the minimum number uh, necessary to have a perfect kind of love is three, because otherwise the love geek is, can be selfish.
2: Why is three better than two?
0: Well, because there is for each person you love, someone else for them to love and be loved by. Your love for the second person is shown by your unselfish wish that they shall have someone else to love and be loved by. That is an unselfish part of love because it seeks the well-being of the second person quite independent of their relation to you. That is why in the perfect marriage, the husband wishes for the wife is to have a child by whom she loves and is loved by. And conversely, the wife wishes this for the husband. That is the perfection of love.
2: The way you tell the story, it's kind of like the the, the Holy Spirit is the child, but if the persons are equal, wouldn't it also be the case? I'm asking this question, whether the, the son and the spirit would love the father in something like the same sense that the father and the son
0: love the spirit uh, that is what i have suggested okay. yes
2: okay.
0: So, so that yeah goes three uh, three cases yes the, yes that's our, right our people,
2: even yes the father generates it from yes that.
0: because the father has no option but to generate
2: okay. yeah i'm curious richard in several of your works you you defend the idea that god is in time And uh, in the Christian God, in specific, you deny the possibility of simultaneous causation, especially where the causation produces change. Yeah. But if God is in time, and essentially so, and the Son is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit is spirated by way of the Father and the Son, this seems to be some kind of change, and it must have necessarily taken place in time. So I don't see how divine necessity can... Save us from some of the worries there if the Son is caused, because it can't be simultaneous on pains of saying yeah. simultaneous causation yeah.
0: can't happen. Uh, no, that's okay, because uh, at each moment of everlasting time, uh, the Father is causing the Son and with the Son causing the Spirit, and at each moment He's causing the existence of the others at a later moment. But you go back in time forever, and so uh, both the Son and the Father and the Spirit all are everlasting, because there is no moment at which there is Father and not Son and Spirit.
2: Uh, if you could, could you uh, flesh out exactly in what sense would then, the, in the analogy of a family with a uh, father and mother or husband and a wife, for the husband, for the love to be perfected, for him to then desire for her to have a child to be loved by. Um, could you help explain to me why couldn't the argument then be that uh, for like a polygamous relationship? Why wouldn't? How would that not fit into what into adding that third element or adding that third person into the
0: equation? Uh, sure, I, it it, w- it would be okay for beings of different kinds from ourselves. Yes, certainly, but uh, we are made uh, so as to uh, have the sort of sex organs that a man and a woman have so that they together uh, procreate a third. But if there are asexual beings of a kind that they, they by themselves can create for a second person, a third person, or in which the, the, the sexual apparatus isn't operative, then okay, yes. yes uh, polygamy, if that's the right word for it, uh, would be a perfect situation, and that, that is that.
1: Thanks for that, Professor Swinburne. Ah, you I'm still struggling <laughs> <laughs> quite what role the, the Dionysian principle plays in the argument, so I know in your view that a divine being is omnipotent and omniscient, and you think that God was free to not create?
0: No, not create us, yes.
1: It's not create any, anything in the cosmos?
0: Uh, yes, not... not um, Sure, yeah. Yeah.
1: Anything beyond the Trinity. Yeah. Well, Okay, but then... A divine being is going to be able to easily forego an infinity of wonderful things. So why is it that they that uh, the first divine person would not be able to forego this love of an equal? You say this Dionysian principle, which is that goodness diffuses itself. Yeah. To me, that just means that good beings tend to do good things. Uh, doesn't seem like enough. Of
0: doesn't mean that to me (laughs) it means that you you create more you spread mean there are different ways of uh, spreading goodness you can make things that aren't very good better and you can make new good new good things and um, surely there are both ways of spreading goodness and um, it's a good thing to have children, Cateris, paribus, and so on. Here's a new new, new human life in existence, and that's good, surely. And, but a, a solitary God, a solitary God who, who was happy with his condition, I didn't, can't conceive of that being a good God at all. He wants to spread. Well, he might,
1: yeah, he might want to spread, but I mean, he wants there to be zebras he doesn't have to create
0: zebras? No, but um, um, the argument then is, you see, that um, his need to, uh, uh, if we just say humans to start with, um, uh, humans are rational beings of an inferior kind. His urge to, crea- to create means that he must create someone to love and someone to be loved by and of course it's also a good thing that he should go on but there's no maximum to his going on and so he can stop anywhere and he can stop before ever he starts on the human beings at all because he's created other rational beings with the other members of the Trinity which are superior ones and yes of course it's good that he should go on but they wouldn't be divine and right down the scale it's good that there should be zebras and lions and tigers and so on and um, in specifying what a perfectly good being would do I I did use this way (laughs) say he would create the best if there is a best and a best kind if there is a best kind And uh, within the best kind, if there is a best number, then that number, and otherwise not. So he has a choice between creating best kinds and within kinds. And it may well be that um, there is a certain sort of kind which is a better kind than any other kind. And that is the divine kind. And that he's got to create. But how many other kinds of inferior kind Sorts is a matter for choice. Anyway, that's the move.
2: I will go there. Thank you. Thank you very much for your talk tonight. Um, I, my question is a little bit of a different nature. Uh, certain flavors of your argument kind of remind me of Origin. I know they're not exactly the same, but I wanted to hear from you. What aspect do you think is the most important difference of your argument from Origin's argument for the trend?
0: You reveal my ignorance. Uh, tell me Origen's argument for the Trinity. It
2: has uh, to do with the uh, begetting and the proceeding out of the Holy Spirit. And for Origen, uh, it's like an infinitesimal dip moment in time for the creation, the begotting of the Son. So there's a chronological difference that I see between your argument and Origen's. But some of the talk of the essence and the emanation sound similar. So, uh, just wondering if the chronological aspect would be what you would say is the most crucial difference.
0: Well, that, that is crucial, of course, because it is a very firm Christian doctrine that there is no time at which the sun is not. Uh, yes, that is a difference, but the great difference. It's not due to me, it's due to Richard of St. Victor, who was the first person after a thousand years to see the reason why there had to be a third being. And I think that was a very great theological discovery.
2: So one of the (coughs) common and facile objections that's often made against cosmological arguments is the question, but what caused God? Now what makes that objection facile is that of course, all classical theism at least, God, the divine nature, is not the sort of thing that is even possibly uh, caused. But your theory of the Trinity makes it be the case that divine kinds, the divine kind, or the divine nature, is something that is susceptible of being caused. Yes. Um, because in, in two of the three instances, it is caused. Yes. And so then, um, I'm worried that this.
0: Its instantiation is caused. The nature is there already in the father. It's it's a duplication in the others is sure. caused. Yeah.
2: Right. But then, right? If the the instantiation of the divine nature in the son is caused, and the instantiation of the divine nature, uh, nature in the spirit is caused. Yeah it seems to open up to the legitimacy of asking for an explanation for why the Divine Nature is instantiated in the Father, and it seems like we would want to not open up the door to that question.
0: Um, well, I don't know if you were in uh, listening to my talk earlier in the day when I was trying to open that, just that very door. I think it is uh, a question that, that we ought to ask, and the answer I was giving is that in fact you can have an analogical sense of cause, which is not what I'm using here, I'm using it in its perfectly ordinary sense, but you could perhaps have an analogical sense of cause in which God is the cause of himself. Father, and in Trinitarian terms, that would mean the Father causes his own existence. Um, That's the way I would do it. It is certainly not the way Aquinas would do it because he said a thing cannot cause itself. So um, the medievals went to uh, to various, in various directions about the necessity of God. Uh, Aquinas seems to have different accounts in different places one place he says God is necessary there are many sorts of necessary beings according to Aquinas I mean souls and uh, angels were necessary beings in the sense that they are not subject to corruption uh, God was different from them because he was a necessary being which was the cause of other necessary beings, that's what made him a supreme necessary being. Elsewhere, uh, he seems to think that God has a nature such that if we knew what this nature was, it would entail his existence, and Scotus says that. Um, it is a question which uh, the medievals asked. and. Uh, uh, tried to answer, uh, and I think that they went basically on the lines either this is an ultimate brute fact, which is not very satisfactory, or on the lines that there's some logical or semi-logical necessity that there should be a God, which I don't, can't see that there is, and so I was speculating with a third possibility, but it's a, certainly a, don't see why we shouldn't be asking that question, even if we can't answer it.
1: Hi, thank you for your time. I'll go here in Texas with us. Uh
2: Several times this evening you've referred to the three entities which constitute the Trinity as uh, three divine beings. If a divine being is by definition of God, then how is this not tritheism?
0: How is this not three gods? It's not tritheism because tritheism is the doctrine of three independent gods. Uh, These, given my argument, are totally dependent on each other. They they cannot come into conflict, they act together. All the acts of the Trinity to the outside world are acts of the whole Trinity, that's to say all they are whatever it is, the sun might initiate these actions, they are backed by the causal powers of the other two. Um, and I have pointed to a mechanism which ensures that they're never in conflict. So they act together, and that's what makes it not a tritheistic view, I suggest. Thank <laughs> okay. you. Thank you, Professor Schreiber. Thank you.
1: I'd like to send a word of thanks to Brandon for his generous contribution through PayPal. Also, Philip in North Carolina, David in Virginia, Kevin in Texas, Troy in Mississippi, Gary in Florida, my friend Rashid in Missouri. Much appreciated, guys. There are two ways you can make a recurring donation to the Trinity's podcast. You can do it through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com trinities Or you can do it through PayPal. Just look for the orange button on the right side of any blog post. Also through PayPal, you can give a one-time donation. This week's Thinking Music has been the track His Last Share of the Stars by Dr. Turtle. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track.